Celebrate New Year's Eve and ring in 2020 with a perfect view at the Commonwealth Club's premier Embarcadero location. As thousands of spectators watch from below, you'll revel in rooftop views of the famous Embarcadero fireworks, indulgent cuisine, high-end spirits, lively entertainment, and the ultimate New Year's Eve experience. Our New Year's Eve party was ranked in the top 10 New Year's Eve parties in San Francisco. So visit our website and reserve your spot today. Commonwealthclub.org Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. I get to do this. I've always wanted to do that. I'm going to do it again. Good evening and uh, welcome to tonight's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. Um, as you just heard, I'm Larry Kramer, president of the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation and your chair uh, for the program, which means essentially that I'm going to introduce everybody else. I'm delighted uh, to be here to introduce this actually really impressive panel uh, and, and also delighted to hear what they have to say about what I think almost everybody would agree, maybe everybody would agree, is the region's most critical issue, which is the housing crisis with its many attendant ills. Uh, the Hewlett Foundation is a nonpartisan, private, charitable foundation founded through the personal generosity of Bill Hewlett and his wife, Flora. Uh, the foundation has been making grants for more than 50 years, working on a range of issues locally, uh, statewide, regionally, nationally, and globally. Uh, but local work focused on the Bay Area has always been one of the foundation's critical and core concerns. I think we're mostly well-known for our support for the performing arts, uh, but local grants from the foundation have supported environmental groups, women's reproductive health organizations, youth-serving organizations, education, museums, neighborhood development, and more over the years. And a few years ago, though, we decided to step back from the spread grant-making we were doing and take stock of what we were doing in the community. So we undertook an 18-month listening tour. We spoke to all of our fellow funders in the region, as well as mayors, city managers, uh, county managers, community leaders, uh, and more. And we asked all of them, basically, what is the, the most significant problem in the Bay Area that, that a foundation like Hewlett might be able to do something about? What was interesting, there was a huge amount of variety in terms of what everybody saw as the second most important problem in the Bay Area. Some people said education, others said criminal justice, still others pointed to immigrant needs or food insecurity, domestic violence, police, community relations, and so on. But there was actually an, an total unanimity on the most important issue. Every single person with whom we spoke identified the housing crisis as the most important challenge and the biggest threat facing our region. And it's not hard to understand why. The Bay Area's soaring housing costs affect everything. Many people have been forced into homelessness. Others have too little money left after paying their rent to afford food or medical care or other necessities. A huge number of low-income residents have been forced to relocate to the outer edges of the Bay Area where few of the services they need are, are available. Commutes that seem to get longer every week disrupt family life and strain the region's transportation systems. Steeply rising housing costs and the commute have made it difficult for employers to recruit and retain employees. It's really not too much of a stretch to say that the housing challenge poses essentially an existential threat to the vitality and future of this region. Now, I'm not a housing expert. I'm actually not an expert on anything uh, the foundation does. Um, it, it, that's true. As the leader of the foundation, essentially my job is to find people who are, to find smart and committed partners who want to solve pressing problems and give those people the support that they need to do the important work of building coalitions, bringing communities together, making progress on seemingly intractable problems like the region's housing challenge. So I'm delighted tonight to announce that we have found a partner for our housing work in the San Francisco Foundation and are awarding them a $7.5 million unrestricted grant, which is the first in what we expect will be an ongoing series of like-sized grants to support their work over time. San Francisco Foundation is dedicated to improving life in our region by building strong communities and advancing racial equity and economic inclusion that would allow every individual in the Bay Area to have a chance to attend a good school, get a good job, and yes, live in a safe and affordable home. 
So we're, we're hopeful that our support uh, of the foundation will help them achieve uh, that important mission. Last month, as most of you probably know, California took a big first step in that direction when Governor Newsom signed into law what might be the nation's most far-reaching package of, of bills on the issue. So I think many of us, and I include myself in here, want to know what does the new law actually mean? Right? What does the road ahead look like? How are lives actually going to improve by virtue of this? And we have a panel that can provide an enormous amount of insight into the issue in the road ahead. And I'm simply going to introduce the moderator of the discussion, who actually happens to be none other than Fred Blackwell, who is the CEO of the San Francisco Foundation. Most of you probably know either know Fred, since everybody seems to, or at least know of him. <laughs> because he's been such a significant figure in the Bay Area for so many years, and in particular around these issues. Uh, since joining the San Francisco Foundation in 2014, uh, Fred has really focused it around a renewed commitment to social justice through an equity agenda focused on racial and economic inclusion. Prior to joining the foundation, Fred, who is an Oakland native, served as interim city administrator for the city of Oakland. He also served as executive director of the San Francisco Redevelopment Agency and director of the Mayor's Office of Community Development in San Francisco. So a career of service to the region. And with that, please welcome all of our panelists as I turn the program over to Fred. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Larry. It's really uh, great to uh, be here, and I'm really looking forward to the conversation. I'm actually not going to say a whole lot to frame the conversation because I really want to uh, get all your voices into the uh, mix here as soon as we can. But I did want to say a couple of things, and I wanted to just uh, start by thanking the Hewlett Foundation for stepping into this issue. It's another one of those kind of thorny and complex issues that's not just facing uh, the Bay Area, but uh, uh, facing the country. It's a funny story. To tell there when um, uh, Judith, our uh, vice president for programs, and I, we had a conversation with uh, uh, Larry's board about this issue, and uh, we could tell uh, a certain amount of the way in uh, that the board was getting a little bit uncomfortable with how uh, complex and almost intractable the issue uh, seemed. And I'll never forget, uh, Larry jumped in and said, well, remember the other two issues that we're working on are climate and democracy. <laughs> Uh, and so, you know, it's always great to have a foundation that's willing to step in and deal with all this low-hanging fruit. Um, <laughs> but the other thing I would say is, you know, I'm very excited to have this conversation. I was so excited that I put on my Air Jordans today. Uh, that You know, it's a special occasion when I, when I do that. Um, but seriously, uh, you know, this is an issue that uh, is impacting the Bay Area in just multiple uh, dimensions. I, um, I spent a lot of time in uh, local government, and I remember we used to do polls every year to see how uh, folks were feeling in the community. And uh, every year, it actually got to the point where I didn't know why we were doing it anymore, because it was education, potholes, and public safety that were the uh, three issues that were most important to folks. And recently, uh, they've all been supplanted, as Larry said, by housing and homelessness, and everything else is still on everybody's mind. But uh, often a distant second uh, to these issues. And it's manifesting itself in a, a wide variety of ways. And I think for that reason, um, folks have started to come up with different kinds of solutions. And uh, I've been working on uh, housing stuff for a long time, and I've actually never seen uh, the dynamic nature of the work that is uh, that we're experiencing right now, whether it's you know new laws being passed in Sacramento, or, um, you know, different kinds of conversations that are happening at the city council level, uh, funds that are being pulled together for all kinds of different purposes, and recently just huge announcements from uh, the corporate side around uh, them bringing uh, private money to the table to kind of augment what's happening on the public sector side and the nonprofit side in order to uh, address the problem. It just feels like um, there's a different kind of mood uh, and a different kind of willingness for people to work together uh, on these issues. And I think, um, you know, one of the things that we want to do with you all tonight is talk about that. Uh, we want to kind of both kind of talk about where we are, the legislation that's been passed in Sacramento and some of the other things that have been uh, happening and talk about kind of what's there and how we got here. Um, and not how we got here from a 
problem point of view, but how we got here in terms of the kinds of solutions that are being uh, proposed and uh, advocated for, um, but also talk about like what's on the horizon. Uh, what are the things that didn't happen in this legislative cycle, for example, that we think still uh, need to be addressed? And what are the things that need to happen in order to really effectively implement uh, the ideas and policy changes that have uh, come down the pike? And so uh, to have it, help us have that conversation, uh, we have four great people who you're going to hear from that represent um, different points uh, of departure uh, around this stuff, whether it's public sector, philanthropic, uh, nonprofit, and advocacy, or the private sector. And we're going to start uh, with Assemblymember David Chu, uh, who uh, has been in this legislative cycle literally in the eye of the storm uh, with this stuff and part of a, a, a really great uh, Bay Area caucus of folks who are really, uh, from a legislative point of view, thinking about what the role is of state and state policy and legislation to address these issues. And so it's great to have you uh, here. And, and thank you for your leadership, uh, not only this year, but through other legislative cycles as well. Um, David is joined uh, by Gina uh, Dahma, um, who is the Senior Vice President for Public Policy and Special Advisor to the CEO at the Silicon Valley Community Foundation, who we are proud to say is a great partner uh, with us in the work that we've been doing around housing and all kinds of other issues impacting uh, the Bay Area as well. Gina has been uh, in this work for a long time, been working at it from a variety of different uh, angles. And before uh, doing that with the um, uh, Silicon Valley Community Foundation, has done this work on an international level in Mexico as well. Uh, and so maybe we will have some international conversation about housing. Um, with Gina, we've got Guillermo Mayer, uh, or Memo, uh, as folks call him. He's the president and CEO a public advocates, a civil rights law firm, an advocacy organization committed to challenge the systemic causes of poverty and discrimination. Uh, public uh, advocates helped advance a public call for a comprehensive housing package this year uh, around. And one thing that I'm proud to say is my mom is a former uh, staff attorney from public advocates. And I remember uh, being a kid in the um, back room with the interns playing darts with folks all the time. <laughs> uh, so it's really a pleasure uh, to have uh, Guillermo. Uh, and then finally, Denise Pinkston, who is a partner uh, at TMG Partners, who is a local developer that has been involved in, how in the housing debate at the local, regional, and statewide levels and has been a strong advocate for more housing. She has over 30 years of experience in real estate and before coming over to the uh, development side uh, was in the public sector for a very long time, including uh, a stint in uh, Marin City and is very active in her hometown of, of Berkeley still trying to uh, advance uh, local policy. And the one thing I will say uh, about Denise is we've had an opportunity to work uh, together a lot over the last two years or so. Um, and she works tirelessly <laughs> Uh, on these issues and can uh, talk about it from uh, both the 30,000 foot level, but get deep into the weeds around <laughs> how we are in this situation. And so it would be great to hear from uh, Denise as well. But uh, so Assembly Member, let me start with you. Um, people have talked about, uh, and we've been seeing all the media posts and all kind of social media posts and uh, print and television about kind of what happened. Uh, in this legislative cycle. And uh, for me, I don't think I've ever seen this much action in Sacramento around housing. Um, what happened this year? Uh, what passed? How, what, was the, what was it like? It was the eye of the storm. <laughs> uh, first of all, it's great to be at the Commonwealth Club. Uh, my only complaint today is no one gave me the memo that said I could wear my Air Jordans. <laughs> So uh, if I get invited back, I will remember how to dress appropriately. But um, so there was a tremendous amount that happened this year. Um, let me first start by just taking a moment to talk about the role of the Bay Area in our housing discussion. So um, the Bay Area has been the epicenter for the state's housing crisis. Uh, we were the first region in the state where we saw the skyrocketing prices, eviction rates, homelessness levels. Um, and when I went to the legislature five years ago, I asked, what are we doing about the housing crisis? And my colleagues, most of them would say, 
not sure what you're talking about. Today, you know, from San Diego with hepatitis A outbreaks to uh, Orange County homelessness encampments to Skid Row to farm workers sleeping in fields to kids who are sleeping on their couches rather than uh, in dormitories, uh, the crisis is is everywhere. And so I think a lot of what happened in California was uh, the rest of the state kind of caught up to where we were. But the Bay Area was also really instrumental pushing forward solutions. Um, I often say that for the most difficult solutions, my dream would be to get the experts into a room, lock the door, throw away the key until they figure it out. And uh, I want to just take an early moment to give credit to this process that started two years ago that Fred uh, and Denise and others were a part of, where the Bay Area literally did that. There were a couple of dozen leaders representing progressive equity organizations like public advocates and others, representing the developer community, representing tenants, representing builders, realtors, apartment association folks, who got into essentially a room called CASA, it was a process, uh, and for the better part of two years um, fought. These were individuals that were used to pointing their guns at each other in politics, but managed to put them down long enough to propose an awful lot of ideas that then became the blueprint for many of the bills that got passed this year. Um, Costa was also responsible for framing what I refer to as the three P's framework of how we are addressing housing. And by those P's, my guess is many of you know it. If you want to repeat after me, the first P is protection. Good. This is good audience participation. So the protection of tenants, making sure that millions of tenants who are vulnerable somehow get to stay in their homes. The second P is preservation. preservation. So the idea that we need to invest in affordable housing and stabilizing the housing that we have. And the third P is protection. protection. Production and making sure that we are producing many of the three and a half million units of housing that we have. Well, what I would say about this year is we scored an A when it came to protection. Uh, we passed the strongest tenant protection law that the New York Times has called in the country, uh, addressing rent gouging as well as predatory evictions. And as the author of that bill, among a number of Bay Area authors, I want to just thank everyone who came together on that. It was incredibly difficult, but the coalition that I just mentioned was what made it happen. When it came to preservation, uh, we were able to move this year an unprecedented $2.5 billion in the budget, which was significantly assisted with a new governor, Gavin Newsom, uh, who really leaned in on this crisis and made sure that we're investing in affordable housing and homelessness services and home ownership and a wide variety of housing needs that we need for our good preservation agenda. But let me end with Production. I think it's fair to say we didn't get that much done in that in this area. We were able to move forward a number of bills to move forward production of accessory dwelling units. Uh, Nancy Skinner had a great bill that would essentially prevent local jurisdictions from backsliding, uh, doing the production they had committed to do. Uh, I had a small bill to move forward more production around affordable housing with increased density bonuses. But by and large, we weren't able to take major steps in that area. The most notable. Uh, whiff that I think we made was around SB 50, my good colleague, Senator Scott Wiener's bill that would have significantly increased production uh, in single family home zoning, as well as around transit oriented areas. Uh, we have a long way to go when it comes to figuring out how we build more. But as they say, uh, a long journey takes those first few steps. And I think it's fair to say we took some major steps this year. Well, thank you. Um, Memo, let me get you in here. I mean, one of the things that I didn't say in the uh, uh, introduction in describing public advocates is that you all uh, launched something called Carson Watch uh, that was really about looking at the federal level, what was happening at HUD and the things that were happening at that level and how they were um, impacting, you know, the nation, but more importantly and all equally important, how they're impacting California. Can you talk a little bit about the the federal landscape, what's happening there, and how it's impacting us. Do you want the good news or the bad news first? <laughs> Take the bad news first. Okay. Well, I, I think nobody will be surprised with the bad news, and that is that this housing crisis is national in scope. Um, it's, it's being painfully felt and acutely felt by families across the country. Um, and like California, it's impacting everybody but it is falling most heavily on the lowest income um, and communities of color, especially black and brown communities. Um, we have at the, pretty much in every major metropolitan region in the country, 
the bottom third of all wage earners is in, stuck in a deepening crisis when it comes to housing. So it's impacting everybody. Nationally, we're about $7 million, $7 million rental units uh, short of providing affordable and accessible housing for low-income families. Uh, when it comes to families that are extremely low-income, for every 100 of those households, we only have 37 rental houses that are affordable to them. And if you're one of the 3 million uh, workers in the U.S. earning uh, the federal minimum wage of 725, you pretty much have to work at a minimum 2.5 jobs to afford a modest single-bedroom apartment in any county in the country. Mm-hmm. I'm not even talking about San Francisco or Oakland or L.A. So it's being felt painfully and acutely uh, by folks. And I wish I could tell you that the Trump administration has been helpful. Um, it has not. And the analogy I will use is pretty harsh, but deserved. Uh, if you were to imagine every state in the country suffering simultaneously natural disasters and FEMA, instead of trying to assist, simply packed up its bags and straight up bounced. That would be a generous analogy to use to describe the performance of HUD and the Trump administration when it comes to the crisis. I think a more accurate but painful analogies that they're bringing to the crisis, containers of gasoline and boxes of matches. Mm. Um, And I say that because they've been doing three things. Um, At every turn, trying to slash funding for federal housing programs, which protect the poorest among us, uh, children, seniors um, across the country. Two, they're trying to roll back critical civil rights laws that protect families against housing discrimination, which were fought, people fought and died for to win, and he's trying to undermine those. And three, he's cruelly and actively targeting the most vulnerable um, and advancing a dehumanizing narrative around homelessness. And so just to give an example of the last point, uh, since he was sworn as housing secretary, Ben Carson has tried to triple the base rent for families on Section 8 vouchers and families in public housing. Mm. Thanks to a lot of good work by advocates, he has been stopped thus far. He is also trying to eliminate federal sub- housing subsidies for mixed-status families, which means that if you live in a household and somebody is undocumented, everybody in that household will be ineligible to get a federal housing subsidy, even U.S. citizens. And it's going to force the eviction of 55,000 children, documented children who presently live in a household where there is one or more adult that is undocumented. Um, so their policies are actually trying to make the situation worse. Um, and then on top of that, when we have the president come to California, he uses that as an opportunity to vilify homeless people, um, saying that they are responsible for ruining the, ruining the magnificent luxury office buildings that we have in our downtowns, our freeways by putting up encampments, um, suggesting that law enforcement should round them up and blaming them for contaminating our water sources. And then most recently, Secretary Carson referred to a transgender, uh, transgender women that are homeless as big, hairy men trying to get into women's shelters. Like, that's how vile the language has gotten at the national level. The good news, despite all that, is that there is a counter-narrative being advanced nationally. And this is being done by the same groundswell of tenant organizing that helped carry the day in California. It's reaching the platforms of the presidential candidates. You're seeing in pretty much all of them have some strong housing agenda that is comprehensive and quite unprecedented in the last three to four decades to see that much attention. We're talking about affordable housing, tenant protections, all these different strategies that before were not being advanced. And we have a lot to be proud of because California is helping lead the way. And there is no sanctuary between, even though we're a sanctuary state, there's no sanctuary when it comes to these federal programs and these rights that they're trying to undermine. So whatever happens at the national stage is going to directly impact Californians. Wow. And what was the good news again? (laughs) (laughs) It's this this counter-narrative that I think we're going to talk about in terms of advancing solutions that the federal, unlike the Obama administration, which was very proactive in gaining a lot of ground, Mm -hmm. this administration has gone quite the opposite. Yeah. 
So, Gina, let me go to you. I mean, you've been working on these kinds of issues for a long time with a real keen eye on, like, what's happening at the local level. Um, and obviously, uh, things can happen in Sacramento, but if it's not really implemented in the right way, uh, it could have negative or unintended consequences. What are the challenges ahead of us and opportunities ahead of us when you're thinking about local-level implementation of these things, and how do we make sure that things are implemented in the spirit with which they were passed? Thank you, Fred, and uh, thank you for having me on the uh, panel. We are so uh, proud, and I'm, I'm sitting next to Assemblymember, too. We're so proud and inspired with the package of bills that was signed into law last month. Um, it's huge. It's meaningful. Um, uh, but we started seeing the consequences really play out throughout our region. Um, days after the, the, the package of bills uh, was signed into law, we started seeing the, a spike on the amount of evictions. We started seeing a spike on uh, rent gauging. And um, it, we really, um, we also started seeing cities uh, step up and, and, set local ordinances, emergency local ordinances, to protect renters, right? So we saw both of those things. The truth is that this is a major endeavor. A change of this scale is going to really require that we're vigilant at the very local level. So I think that um, what we're seeing and what we hope to see is that we need to build the capacity at the very local level to make sure that that our folks um, are tracking um, what implementation looks like. They're advocating. Um, sometimes they'll have to litigate uh, in order to make sure that the implementation of the bills actually achieves its intended outcome, right? Um, there's sort of three core areas of work that we've been looking at um, as a foundation. Um, the first one is we need to make sure that we're building the legal uh, resources uh, on the ground, making sure that um, we are having organizations at the local level that can educate tenants, that can protect tenants. Um, we also need to make sure that we're building community-based organizations, grassroots organizations, so um, so they're able to uh, facilitate folks um, participating in these local processes, which are going to become local processes, make sure that they're being able to provide input. Um, and the third thing is we really have to change a lot of the, we have to make sure that we are supporting that there's a groundswell to to change at the local level, right? We need to make sure that we're electing more people of color, more low-income people, more young people, more that we have city councils that really reflect who we are as a community and the needs of our community, right? With with um, And right now, by the way, if you try to run for city council in any of the mid-peninsulas, campaigns cost around $150,000, to run for city council in fifty thousand in in, in cities of fifty thousand, right? So who's going to run? Who's going to win? Who's going to uh, represent our communities? This is a we've got to we've got to deal with with this. And the truth is that if we um, if we're able to build the capacity at the local level to really make sure that implementation achieves its intended outcomes, we have to sort of like build the muscle. Um, at the local level, and I keep saying at the local level because because that's where we're going to see the change, but we need to ensure that our cities and our communities are actually the watchdogs of um, of these laws getting into um, into our communities. Yeah, thank you. So, um, Denise, I've got a confession. Um, and David kind of referred to it in the beginning. When you and I first started working in CASA on these, this kind of suite of solutions, if someone had told me um, that the tenant protection stuff and preservation stuff would move forward and that the production bills would stall uh, and be turned into two-year bills or gutted, um, I would have said, what are you talking about? Um, and my fear was that the production stuff was going to happen and it would be the protection stuff that would have been left on the cutting room floor. Um, but that's not what happened. Um, and, you know, a lot of folks just say, why don't developers build more? What's the role of developers in this stuff? So can you just talk a little bit about what's preventing developers from building? Happy to. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> when I left local government to start working in the private sector, people used to do the Darth Vader breathing. The <laughs> And one of my jokes is I'm like Darth Vader now, but in a skirt. Um, and, and developers do a very poor job of explaining to people why what we do matters. How many folks in this audience live in a deed-restricted, affordable home built with public subsidy? Just for the folks who are audio only, I saw no hands. Your homes were built, oh, one hand, sorry, one hand, out of an audience of, I don't know, 100 or more folks. That's about right. And actually, the the odds are less likely that you'll live in deed-restricted affordable housing as a percentage of the population. All our homes were built by developers. Most of the money in the engine that is production is private money. It's our pension funds. It's university endowments. It's, It's the money we hope to retire on one day. And so when you think about how do we, what's broken about housing production, part of it is that people hate change. And what they really hate is change that has a profit tag attached to it. So development is viewed as unwelcome change of existing communities and neighborhoods to bring people in who don't live there already. And typically, to make things look different than they do now. And and it's really hard to overcome that. So my job for a living is to help cities decide it's okay to let developments move forward. And that public sector experience and private sector experience has informed the housing work, because I've seen it from both sides. I've been the planner saying no, artfully, maybe, you know, maybe. Um, And I've been the developer trying to get to yes. And the reasons that we cannot build enough are that every aspect of the housing production engine is right-sized to scarcity, particularly in California. Everything. We have, in California, the highest cost in the United States to build a unit of housing. I saw an article today, $750,000 a unit to build a new unit of housing. Um, We have the highest fees. We have the most lengthy arcane housing approval process. Our fees alone are like telling new entrants they have to pay Mar-a-Lago dues for the privilege of living in a community in California. Now, if you put it that way, people would be upset about it. But when you say, I want to charge $150,000 a door in impact fees, all of a sudden that seems okay. Um, We have insufficient housing. The crisis has gotten so bad that we can't even produce for the middle class without subsidy. So most of the people in the population today cannot afford to live in a new unsubsidized home. And there is not enough money, as folks said, there is nowhere near enough money for subsidy for very low income, extremely low income, low income folks, much less the middle class workforce that is our teachers and our nurses and our doctors. Um, Tax policy favors jobs in California. So every city finds a way to say yes to a new hotel. They're especially favored. Um, Office buildings are often popular and don't see nearly the line of unhappy neighbors showing up. But housing projects are hard, much harder. Um, And since we're the epicenter of the global transformation of the economy in California, we have been building seven to ten times as many jobs as we have housing units for that workforce, which means that the very lowest income people are like the folks in a game of musical chairs who never get a chair when the music stops. Wealthier people come into the economy, everyone bumps along, and the poor folks are living under the freeway or in Texas. Um, Our zoning rules allow our neighbors to exercise veto over what we can do, what we can build, whether or not my mother-in-law can live in the garage with her own private bathroom and, and her own toothbrush cup. Things that we wouldn't think of as allowable if you had a privacy right notion about it, but we allow that to occur in our land use environment. Um, it's over new entrants to the market, new neighbors, and new housing forms. And most of our land area is devoted to very low-density single-family homes. 75 80% of the land area in most California California metropolitan areas is single family zoning. So what happens to those folks who got bumped off the chair and musical chairs when the music stopped? Well, they either leave the state or they move out. 
So all the folks that are suffering, not all of them, but a lot of the folks that are suffering in the wildfire areas of the state can't live near their job. There was an article, I don't know, three months ago about a police officer in the peninsula who was living in Butte County who had a two or three hour commute to get home and the man died because he fell asleep at the wheel. And somehow we read these headlines and we become desensitized to the magnitude and the scope and the fact that a lot of what's going on are rules we created and that we tolerate. So we can't tolerate that stuff anymore. And this sort of cross-sector conversation and policy development is critical to debunk the myth of the, or I want to say the myth because there are a lot of, to, to debunk the, the notion that development is all bad mm-hmm. and that market rate housing is the cause of gentrification and displacement. That can't be true because most of the neighborhoods gentrifying and displacing haven't seen a new unit of housing in a very long time. And that the middle-income folks who we can't build for at all are the ones moving into East Oakland, West Oakland, East Palo Alto, Castro Valley, like the places that used to be affordable in the Bay Area are now where teachers and doctors and nurses live because they can't afford to live near their jobs. So we've just got a perfect storm that guarantees scarcity everywhere and we got to rethink every aspect of it to right-size the plenty. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. So, um, David, um, Denise just laid out a litany of... <laughs> she did. She went there. Th- things that are happening at the local level um, that are uh, undermining new uh, development, which I would imagine is part of the reason why the state has been kind of stepping into this um, a little bit more. Um, what is the balance, though, between uh, state-level intervention and, kind of, and sticks versus kind of what needs to happen at the local level? That is sort of the heart of the discussion right now, just mm-hmm. to the degree to which the state should come in and essentially try to move forward through this crisis because local jurisdictions haven't acted. Um, you know, my perspective on this is if local jurisdictions were building enough housing, if we weren't in this housing crisis, there would be no reason for us to step in. But just as you have, for example, state public health laws because you need a standard so that folks don't get sick, when you have folks who are dying on the streets mm-hmm. every day in every city, double-digit increases of homelessness, we have to do something. When you have an entire middle class that's being hollowed out and pushed to drive two to three hours a day, which creates congestion issues, environmental issues, health issues, risks of people falling asleep at the wheel. We've got to do something. We are at that crisis state. And so from my perspective, I think we have to do something. But let me just give you a sense of just how difficult this conversation is. So um, we all know that we need to build more housing around transit. That is, I think, something we can all agree on. The question is sort of how do we get there? Uh, My colleague Scott Wiener suggested SB 50, which is a good major step forward. Last year, I suggested what I thought was going to be this minor little bill uh, to say the following. There are about 26 BART stations, mostly in the East Bay, that are surrounded each by about 10 acres of surface parking lots. And BART, for its 45-year history, has been unable to develop its own land, the surface parking lots, into housing, four- or five-story housing, mixed-use development. And so I suggested a little bill to say, in the process, let's give BART a little bit of a tip in the scale to allow them to move forward to develop their own land, 300 acres around 26 BART stations. It was as if I had suggested sacrificing the firstborn of many of the city councilors that were impacted in this area. It was an incredibly difficult thing to do. We barely got it through the state assembly, and thanks to our friends in the Senate, including my good friend Nancy Skinner, who I see in the front row here representing Berkeley, we were able to get it through, get it to the governor's desk. He signed it. That was a struggle 
for 300 acres of BART-owned land around 26 BART stations. We need to do way more than that if we're going to address this crisis. And so this state-local discussion, it is at the heart. And to Denise's point, it is about getting people to think if we're going to solve the crisis, we actually need to change. What does that change look like? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, I want to come back to protection maybe and get you to weigh in a little bit here, Memo. Um, Great um, legislation this year, as uh, Assemblymember Chu uh, mentioned, that uh, tried to address um, predatory evictions and uh, rent gouging that's happening uh, in multifamily housing across the state in some cases. Um, but that doesn't feel like that's the, the end of this um, or the end-all, be-all. What else needs to happen in order to adequately uh, protect tenants? And um, what are some of the things that folks are working on that we can expect to see? Um, well, it's not the end or, or be all, but it was a major step forward. I just want to underscore that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, let me say a couple of things related to that, to what this bill makes, makes possible, which I think opens the door for what's to come or what might come. Um, one, I think, uh, uh, Assemblymember Chu's bill, uh, you, you, gave some, you gave people something very tangible, a really important reform that hits people's pocketbooks, and prevents people from losing their homes. You can't get more tangible than that. And when you're dealing with a housing crisis that's very complex, people need to see progress that's actually tangible. And that's a really important thing about this legislation. Um, Two, it is uh, a testament to the incredible amount of tenant organizing that is happening across the state, which is unprecedented. And that's the muscle behind, I think, why the tenant protection, the P for protection, went first. It's because you had people, it builds upon decades of local organizing for tenant protections and rent control in countless cities from Burlingame to Sacramento to Englewood, Santa Cruz, uh, Santa Rosa, the county of L.A., you name it. It's been building upon, and it's now bubbling up to the state level. And so that's why you had folks able to pressure districts and to turn out the votes. It was one major component to it, which was, I would say, really made a huge difference. And that tenant organizing and that tenant momentum is not going anywhere. It's clear that this is a step in the right direction, and I think you're going to see even more ambitious activity around tenant protections because we now have a major foothold Mm -hmm. in state policy around protection, which is really key. Second, I think Mr. Chu's bill was critical because it helped rewrite and reimagine or reemphasize the landlord-tenant relationship in California, where it was a clear signal that this relationship needs to be regulated in order to ensure that the right to housing and the basic need of housing is prioritized over maximizing profits. It's the first time... It's the first time that we have such a clear law that says, landlord, you have the right to get a reasonable return for your investment, but not at the expense of pricing somebody out of their home. It's not the complete uh, realization of that statement, but it is a very powerful step in that direction. And I think from that opening, tenant rights advocates have a lot of room to work with, including, I would say, there's probably going to be an intensified push for rent control ordinances at the local level, and it's not going away at the, at the state level. Mm-hmm. Second, I think um, uh, shifting from the protections to the production, um, we have to call out those high-opportunity, low-density suburban communities that constantly, and for as much as I can remember... Um, have been keeping low-income people, including seniors, out. Even though these, resi- these prospective residents are already part of those communities because they work there mm-hmm. every day, and they commute in, and Pleasanton is 40000 every morning, mm-hmm. right? But these suburban jurisdictions are like pretty much drawing up their drawbridge at the end of the, the day, the workday, Everybody gets expelled, and in the morning you can come back in, and then we let you work, and then you go out. And 
so it's really important to, and, and these are communities that are, have a lot of jobs, they have good schools, um, and they're keeping out, I think racism is a, and, and uh, not just racism, but also just the phobia of people with, with lower incomes. Mm-hmm. It's deeply entrenched in these communities, and we've been fighting this since the passage of the Fair Housing Act. Right? It's the other side of the coin or the back side of the moon. And we've been suing jurisdictions, but like I said in the back, it's like a game of whack-a-mole because one does it, then another does it, and these are very well-resourced communities. So that's where we need a structural solution. Right? And we're pursuing legislation at the state by Assemblymember Bloom that would help facilitate in these high-wealth, low-density Communities that, frankly, are not racially or economically diverse, um, to be able to build small-scale market rate and large-scale mixed income and affordable housing. Mm-hmm. We do that by overriding their zoning authority where necessary and providing a ton of in- incentives. So we need more of those structural um, uh, changes uh, coming forth. And I'll say one last thing. Since you're wearing your Air Jordans, I'm going to reach for the sky. <laughs> um, we've got to talk about getting larger and larger shares of housing off the private market. Mm. Cities are, at the, are, are being held like, at the mercy of what's likely to be a more erratic housing market in years to come. They can't even find enough housing. We can't find housing for the workforce, let alone the lowest income folks in our, in our communities. And so we have to push for funding for community land trusts where nonprofits, um, uh, organizations, and residents themselves can joint own land and hold it in the public trust. And I know this is inch by inch, but democracy advances inch by inch, right? And, it's, and we also have to think about concepts like socialized housing, where cities can build housing for all income levels because it recognizes that that's how we weather the storm when it goes wrong. And I would say that um, think about bay restoration or, or, or pre- preventing the bay from eroding. You want to protect more and more layers that act as natural buffers to the next uh, uh, disaster, Right, And I think that's what we need to start doing is taking it off permanently off the market so that it's not subject in our cities, subject to the whims of the market, and our cities can be more resilient in the long term. Cool. Thank you. Um, you all have started to touch on a number of issues that correspond with uh, questions that are being uh, coming up from the, the audience, and I'm just going to dig into a couple of them. I'm going to try to cluster them. One is sticking with uh, tenant protection for a second. There are a number of uh, cards that have questions about um, how to implement um, the, the law that was passed uh, uh, this year and what needs to happen in order to hold landlords accountable, uh, what needs to happen uh, in order to make sure, as Gina, you referred to, folks don't try to start doing evictions and hiking up rents before the law goes into effect. There's a lot of in here that folks are expressing around implementation. Does anybody want to talk about that piece of it and what we need to do? The quick answer is the way we implement this is the way we implement landlord-tenant law currently, which Mm -hmm. is we have to make sure that our public is educated on their rights. Mm -hmm. And if it turns out that there are landlords that are behaving badly, we have to make sure that those tenants have the resources, likely attorneys, uh, who can vindicate those rights. Um, As was alluded to before, just in the last couple of weeks, we have heard of landlords who are trying to take advantage of the next couple of weeks before the law goes into effect by evicting folks. And uh, thanks to the tremendous organizing around the state, a number of cities have already passed short-term emergency ordinances to shut that down. Um, but we designed this bill to ensure that, on the one hand, we're providing some predictability to tenants, but we're also allowing landlords a fair rate of return on their investment, uh, capping rents at the consumer price index plus 5%. That's roughly 8 to 9%. Every professional uh, apartment manager will tell you that is adequate profit for you to be able to manage your building, uh, do what you need to do, but also make uh, 
some return on your investment. And so from our perspective, we believe that uh, that world should be able to to do all right. Uh, that was in part uh, how we got the consensus to move this forward. And I would agree with everything that was said by Guillermo about all the forces that move this forward, including the tremendous tenant advocacy around the state. But I do want to give some credit to the industry players uh, that worked with us, um, and we were able to nip and tuck certain aspects of the legislation to ensure, for example, that we're not disincenting construction uh, with a 15-year exemption. And and those were aspects that we needed to do to move this forward. And I would say long term, um, the way we're successful when it comes to housing is we all have to figure out how to work together. I agree with what Guillermo is saying, but I also agree with what Denise is saying. We've got to empower tenants. We've got to build a lot more housing. We've got to uh, get as much public investment as we can in housing. But we also have to support the private markets because we know that it would cost us hundreds of billions of dollars uh, to build a socialized housing system. I would love to build as much of that as possible. But in the meantime, if we're going to have a shot at doing this, the private markets also have to uh, be supported in moving this forward. And, and I would say just to close, um, this year was a bit of a leap of faith between really two sides of the housing wars that uh, came together to move forward tenant protection. I think 2020, my hope is we're going to move forward an awful lot when it comes to production. And my hope is that the two sides of these debates are able to come together to move forward production in a significant way. We need all the above sets of solutions if we're going to address the crisis. Thank you. Um, There are some really great questions that are coming out here. I'm going to try to cluster a few more. Um, There are a set of questions here that have to do with the intersection between housing and other issues that we're grappling with as a community. Um, One set of questions around the intersection between housing and environment and climate. Uh, Another set of questions around the intersection between housing and school policy. Um, And then a third uh, set of questions about the intersection uh, between uh, housing and uh, tax policy uh, as well. Um, Any of those, any of you want to talk about? Oh, and then then one more. I'm sorry, one more. And maybe we'll start with this one. Um, The conversation about housing is often bifurcated uh, by the, uh, against the conversation around homelessness. Um, can you all talk about how these things interact? Yeah, Lama. So there's a really uh, important study last year by the online real estate database company Zillow um, that showed how, uh, as communities... Were, uh, if a community where its people are spending more than 32% of their income on rental housing, you see an increase. They can, they can count on an increase in homelessness that is much different than otherwise, otherwise. So the reason why that's important is because as more people spend a greater share of their household income on, on rent, you do see a kind of correlating kind of increase in homelessness. But once you reach that 32%, it goes like this. Mm-hmm. It's a real tipping point. And it suggests that at 32% of your income, that that housing bur- cost burden is becoming, has a cascading effect and it makes everything else unworkable in your life. And, and a family is much more likely to enter that mostly invisible journey to, to homelessness, which begins with moving in with your relatives or moving in with your friends. And if you have a car, moving into, into your car until you reach the street and you're seeking refuge at a shelter or pitching a tent, right? And so I think that 32% is a really critical uh, a threshold for us. And I think the three Ps are trying to make sure that we, make, we bring people well below that, 30, that 30% threshold um, so that that doesn't lead to a r- dramatic escalation of homelessness, and I would say this, I would use the analogy of since you brought up climate change. Mm-hmm. Let's treat this 30% or 32% as our Paris Agreement Accords. There we're trying to address climate change by making sure that global temperatures don't increase by, well, that if, as they increase, it's well below the two uh, degrees Celsius uh, from pre, the pre-industrial area. Because we know that after that, and maybe even before that, <laughs> it gets cataclysmic. It just gets worse. And it's ir- irreversible. We know the same about this 32% threshold. The good thing for us is that it is reversible. 
50% of Bay Area renters are housing burdened. They, they, they exceed this threshold. But we can bring, through the 3P strategy, mm-hmm. that housing cost down and therefore eliminate those huge spikes in homelessness. So there's a correct, a very direct relationship between the two. Mm-hmm. I'll answer the question in a slightly different way. So public policymakers, we have for decades completely siloized our healthcare system, our criminal justice system, uh, our housing system, our education system. We'll spend $80,000 to incarcerate someone in a prison. But the second that individual leaves prison, is formally incarcerated, if we're not spending money to house that person, that person needs help, is exposed to the elements, can't get a job. Let's say he decides to shoplift at a supermarket, and then all of a sudden he's back at an eighty to $90,000 a year prison. Let's take someone who's chronically homeless on the streets, who's cycling in and out of our emergency rooms, uh, out of health services, mental health services. It costs us about $70,000 a year. If we put a supportive roof over their heads, $20,000 a year. Let's take that kid in a classroom who his classmates don't know that he's homeless. What is the impact long-term on society, on our educational system, because we can't get that seven-year-old a home? We're not having those conversations, and right now we're starting to think about what it means to spend more smartly breaking down those silos, Um, but those are some of the paradigm shifts that we're trying to grapple with as policymakers. Gina, let me get you in here, because there are also a set of questions about um, the regional nature uh, of this uh, issue, and I know we're sitting here in San Francisco, and I know that you've spent a lot of time (laughs) down on the peninsula in the South Bay uh, thinking about these issues, and I remember, Denise, you'll remember this too, that the mantra, it seemed like, when we were working on CASA was one size doesn't fit all. Uh, so can you talk about kind of the regional nature of this, but also the very kind of local nature of it? And how is this, a, how is this issue different maybe on the peninsula in the, in the South Bay? Yeah, and, you know, I love having, I love coming to, uh, to San Francisco discussing our housing crisis, going back to the peninsula and discussing the crisis. The, the crisis is the same. It looks very different, though. It looks very different. You don't have bumper-to-bumper RVs lining up El Camino, which is the way we experience homelessness. Mm-hmm. Um, so just to give you a quick uh, landscape view, there's 35 um, cities and towns between San Francisco and Gilroy and Morgan Hill. 35. That's 35 city councils. That's 35 um, planning commissions. When Memo has to do advocacy in Burlingame, and then he hears about something in Menlo Park, um, Cupertino, Sunnyvale, it's a different county, it's a different city. I mean, this is just incredibly, incredibly complicated. Mm-hmm. And... Um, the the what we need to make sure is that again we're building the local capacity so the so the solutions get defined locally um and um memo has the ability to scale public advocates and other advocacy organizations in a way that that allows these these uh local groups to connect to more regional approaches mm-hmm. um it's it's incredibly important that we know that we are all living a, a horrible uh, housing crisis, that we're pushing people away farther and farther from our communities. Mm-hmm. Um, the mid-peninsula uh, cities, um, and Memo, you talked about it, these are the cities that have most potential for uh, increasing density. And yet they are the cities that most that, that, that fight density and growth the most, mm-hmm. right? So how do we build people power in these local communities mm-hmm. to ensure that they are also uh, being part of the solution? And the truth is that um, one size does not fit all, but every city has to do their fair share of housing, specifically around our extremely low-income community members, low-income community members, and modern-income community members, right? Yeah. And sticking with the regional frame for a minute, one of the other pieces of legislation that moved forward in this cycle was, uh, among all the statewide stuff, was a really interesting regional bill uh, that talked about regional governance around uh, housing and regional uh, capital aggregation as well. Denise, uh, Assemblymember Chu, I know you were in the eye of the storm again. Um, somebody want to talk about that and what needs to happen next with that? Sure. Um, so AB 1487 was a bill that uh, Fred and Denise and their colleagues from CASA tricked me into carrying. 
Um, and I say that because uh, the concept was to build, as, as, as Gina just said, build a little bit of regional strategy to, to what we're doing on housing. When you've got 101 cities, nine counties in the Bay Area, uh, where you have some cities that are striving mightily, but other cities that are not, um, we need everyone to be rowing in the same direction. And so we propose to build to essentially say, as a region, let's all as a region, raise revenues to build affordable housing, to try to get at what Guillermo put at, uh, of being able to invest in, uh, in, in all of our communities. Um, similar to the BART TOD bill, uh, the reaction of city councilors around the Bay uh, was not as kind as I'd hoped it to be. Um, but um, we were able to get the consensus we needed to to pass the bill. And what where we are right now is um, the Bay Area now, if we choose to, we can choose to place on a nine-county ballot measure, um, revenue measures to raise funding for all of our counties with the vast majority of the money going back to each of the individual counties. We do this already when it comes to transportation. We, we've done it actually uh, building on the Bay Restoration example. We've literally done it as a region to raise money to help us uh, become more resilient when it comes to sea level rise. And we will potentially have the opportunity on the November 2020 ballot to do it for housing. But it's going to, again, require all of us coming together as one region across all of these boundaries to say this is something that draws us together, uh, that when you're creating hundreds of thousands of jobs and no housing, when you have double-digit unemployment, uh, uh, homelessness, uh, when you have three-hour commutes, this is a regional crisis, and we have to deal with it as a region. Um, Denise, so, you know, nonprofits in the public sector and the development community have been working on these issues for a long time, but we've started to see some some new players jump onto the scene. Um, you know, we just heard an announcement this morning from, from Apple. Facebook has made an announcement. Microsoft, Google, Amazon. Um, I know you've been working with the Bay Area Council for years and uh, thinking about how the corporate sector engages in in housing issues. What do you think has them leaning into this issue so much right now? And what do you think the opportunities are for them to work with the public sector and the nonprofit sector uh, in a more integrated way uh, towards solutions? As someone pointed out earlier, the housing crisis affects everybody, and it affects employers and their employees, whether they're homeowners or tenants. Um, A lot of folks drive to work at Google and sleep in their trailer on the corner, like you described, and then, or they're called part-time homeless. They're only homeless during the work week, and on the weekend they go back to the Central Valley. So companies in the Bay Area are acutely aware of the magnitude of the housing crisis. And, and I think the three-piece framework is more than the P's. It's the notion that Guillermo and I have to shake hands. We will shake hands. <laughs> we have to find a way to live. We don't have to love each other's ideas. But we have to find a way to live with them because that's the only way to move the agenda forward. And, and the, the business community understands the importance of that partnership. Um, it affects everybody in their company from the janitor to the, to the CEO. And it's important for everyone to do their fair share. Every city needs to do their fair share. Companies and employers want to help. Um, I think that up till now that no one quite knew what to do, really. Um, Companies that build things don't necessarily think it's their job to house the people that they build for. That was the old company town model that we thought was a bad idea in one generation or two ago. But we now all need to step outside our comfort zone. And we need to get engaged with issues that wouldn't necessarily be ours naturally, but have to become our issues in order to solve the problem. When we were lobbying these bills, I would go to Sacramento on behalf of the Bay Area Council and say, hey, Mr. Chu or or Senator Skinner, um, I'm a developer and I work in the business community and I'm here to tell you that we can live with reasonable tenant protections. And jaws hit the floor. (laughs) People were shocked to hear that the business community's approach to these issues is changing just like the advocacy community isn't just talking about tenant protection anymore. It's important for them to keep owning that work and pushing it forward. But they're also saying, yeah, housing production matters. It matters to have market rate housing production as well as deed restricted affordable. That's the only way forward. And I think the business community is finding ways to make 
to own their part of this and to make really meaningful contributions. Yes. So I could keep going forever, but I think we're to the point where we're maybe just one last question. And maybe if I could get each one of you all, if they give me a, if it's possible, a quick answer to this, because <laughs> um, it's a, it's a big one. What would be your moonshot uh, around this issue? 3.5 million units built in the next three years. There you go. All right. There you go. We combined. We got two out on that one. I'll sign up for that. Memo. Um, I'm going to do a, I'm gonna take a different approach, and that is rechanging the conversation about development statewide and having, we got to start from scratch. I would say that Gina's point about making sure that our communities are well represented in decision-making positions is absolutely essential. Without that, you cannot, you have to force people to do the right thing as opposed to them seeing what's in their best interest. And I think there's a massive imbalance of power in local decision-making, as well as at the state level, that's starting to see some shifts, which allows us to be in the same table when when there's a greater balancing of power. And that's about democracy. Like, it is about climate change and democracy, which were the other issues that the Hewlett Foundation was considering. It's fundamentally about democracy and who gets to decide. All right. My final moonshot notion is that our kids are going to take this work forward. Mm -hmm. And that the next generation of Californians doesn't see these things as mutually exclusive. You can have more housing. You can solve climate change. You can be pro-democracy. You can protect tenants. And you need to advance all of those equally so that they don't cancel each other out. And I think that folks in my generation are just now coming to that realization that we can do all of the above. And in fact, we have to. And I think our kids somewhat more intuitively understand that. Otherwise, they'll be living on the East Coast or Chicago, like where my kids are living. And, uh, but they're starting to get housing religion, and it's changing outcomes. There are a lot of aspects of housing conversation is very generational. Mm-hmm. And you go to a public hearing on a housing project, and a lot of the people who don't want it to happen are older homeowners. And a lot of the people who do are younger people who work there who would really love to live there, too. And I think that that needs to knit together as we grow and change into this next millennia. Well, um, thank you. I want to thank those in the audience as well as folks who are going to be listening and watching over stream. I also want to uh, thank the Foundation's Bay Area Leads Fund and its contributors for uh, sponsoring this discussion. But most importantly, thank you to Assemblymember Chu, Gina Dalma, Memo, Denise, for a great conversation. Thank you. And this is, we're adjourned.